Hello and welcome to the Life Church Audio Podcast. We hope that you find these messages encouraging, life-giving, and ultimately get you closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hey Life Church, I'm so glad that you joined us again. We are continuing on with our series called Wake Up the House, and this week I want to want to wake you up to the fairness of God. We, we have a saying in church, and most of you know the saying. I would say, God is good. And then most of the people in the congregation would say, all the time. And then I would say, all the time. And you would say, God is good. And even though we say that, we can say God is good. We still ask and wonder if God is fair. He is good, but is he fair? Because why do good people suffer? Why does God allow that? That doesn't seem fair to allow it. Good people to suffer, to go through difficulties. Abraham asked this question. He said, should not the judge of the world judge fairly? Moses said, God, why don't you treat your people as they deserve? Jeremiah said, why do the wicked prosper? It's not fair that bad people are getting richer and the good aren't. Why do so many people starve to death? Why do so many die in developing countries of preventable diseases? Why are people dying unfairly? God, why did bad things happen to me? Why did you let me get abused? Why did you let my husband or allowed my husband or my wife to cheat on me? Why did she get breast cancer? Why did he, why did he get a brain tumor? Why can't we conceive a child? God, it's not fair. God, are you fair? And I believe so many people really want to give God the benefit of the doubt. And I know you want to. And you want to say, God, I believe in you. I believe you are good. But they feel forced and you feel forced into a corner saying, I guess God can't be good and in control. Because if he was good and in control, he'd do something about this. But because there are all of these bad things happening to me, I feel like I'm forced to either say I can't trust God's goodness or truly God is not fair. But I don't believe that is the truth. I'm going to explain to you why. Because from what I have discovered in life, working with people, working through the Bible, in studying and with ministry, that I've discovered there are three main reasons why these things that we feel are unfair is happening to us and to this world. The first reason why bad things are happening is because you are simply a victim of a broken and fallen world. When sin entered into the world, there was death, pain, destruction, suffering, punishment, consequence. All of these things is a consequence of the curse of sin. Jesus said it this way in John 16, 33, says, in this world, you will have trouble, trouble, pain, hard times, difficulties, struggles, things you don't like, unfair outcomes. But then he goes on and he gives us, his children, he gives us hope. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world and you will get to see this. So number one, we are victims of a fallen world. Number two, the second reason why, why difficulties and unfair things and and wrong things you feel are happening to you now. I don't take joy in saying this, but many of your problems you brought on yourself. If we live sinfully, we face the consequences of those decisions, the direct consequence of our decisions. 
the wrong relationships that we chose, the wrong friendship circles that we chose, the decisions we made not to be part of a body or a church or a congregation, a group of people where we can be encouraged and uplifted and strengthened, the choices that we are making regarding how much we drink, what drugs you are using, the money you are spending that you don't have that is causing stress and anxiety and fear, the health choices that you are making. It's unfair to blame God for our bad decisions and our wrong choices. Galatians 6 verse 7 and 8 says the following, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that very nature, what does he reap? He reaps destruction. It's our choices, that's our decisions. So why are bad things happening to you in your life right now? The first two reasons I want to remind you, you're a victim of a broken world that we are living in. That we are living in. The second reason, bad decisions, choices that we've made, that we've brought upon ourselves. And then the third reason, because there is an enemy. There is an enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy your life. I want to show you an example from Job. Job in Hebrew means afflicted. So in Job, um, many of you have read, read Job. You've heard teachings on Job. I think there are many incorrect teachings on Job. But I want to show you some amazing truths from this man, Job, in Job 1 verse 1, it says the following, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. It does not say that man was sinless and perfect. It said he was blameless and upright, and, and one who feared God and shunned evil. I want to say this again. There is only one who is perfect, and that is Jesus. Job was not perfect. He was blameless. In verse 2, and then, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. This guy was seen as the greatest man of, if there was a Time magazine, he would have been on it. And verse 9, so Satan answered the Lord and said to him, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? So Satan comes to God and says, God, um, your man Job, you've protected him. There is a hedge around him from every side. And then he goes on in verse 10. You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in this land. Now, I want you to notice something that is so important to notice here. Satan is complaining to God that God is to blame for all the blessing in Job's life. Satan is less confused about blessing than what many believers are. Blessings, they come from God. And the enemy knows it. Now in verse 12, it goes on. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, look, that's what the word there is. Look, all that he has, God is saying, look, see, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on the person. So, so here is what happens. Satan wants to tempt Job and he's saying to God, the only reason that Job is blameless and a righteous man in front of you is because you are blessing him so much. God responds to him and said, look, He's in your hands. 
Satan knew that Job had something in his life that gave him a legal right, access. Job was not perfect. Job, when you continue reading, we see that Job had fear in his life. And we won't get into this now, but where there is fear, faith is absent. And that means the enemy has an access to your life. So Satan knows and he understands legalities and he will use legalities to rob you, to steal from you, to destroy you. God cannot be persuaded. The enemy, Satan, did not persuade God to allow evil to come over Job. It was already in Satan's hand because of Job's decisions. Now, many theologians say God delivered Job into Satan's hand. And that is absolutely 100% wrong. That's not the truth. God says, look, all that he has is in your hands, but don't touch the person. So why do good people suffer? Why do bad things happen? One tragedy after the next we see happened to Job, but none of them say that Satan was directly involved. And this is what happens in the world today also. All of these bad things are happening, but none of, no people are saying it's the enemy it's the devil, it's Satan that's causing these things to happen. But we know, when we read this passage, we know that the devil was directly involved because he just said, I'm going to bring harm to Job. Satan used robbers. He used lightning. He used earthquakes, storms, tragedy, pain, suffering, confusion, division. These are not acts of God. These are the acts of the enemy. And Job 2 verse 1, Job says the following, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have that song that we sing, but theologically, that song is incorrect. It is a wrong statement. Just because Job said it doesn't mean it is truth. Jesus speaks truth. People have errors in their speaking, just like Peter said, Oh Lord, you will surely not, not die. Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, because what you are saying is incorrect. When Job said, The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away, it is an incorrect statement. God gave, but the enemy took away. We have the same reasoning for why people are going through bad things right now. Listen, God is the answer. He is not the problem. So this brings us back to the question. We know now why there are things happening in this world and went through it really quick. Fallen world, decisions, and an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But it brings us back to the question, is God fair? It's a question that's been asked throughout the ages and throughout the Bible. To today, I want to show you something about fairness, about the fairness of God. It overwhelms our understanding. It supersedes our standards. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to read a parable together. Now, parables, parables in the Bible uh, formed a way that Jesus uh, he used parables to teach and to communicate. Parables were based in life. It, were, it was stories of communication that Jesus was using that the people of the day would understand the, the principle that he's trying to teach them. And so when people who heard Jesus teach 
heard his parables, they could immediately relate to what he was talking about. They didn't have to go to a lexicon or to some theologian to explain to them what, G, what he was trying to say. He told stories that were grounded in their lives. Now, in these parables, we sometimes see behaviors that aren't what we would do or what we would think in, in our modern day culture and, and in society. So in order for us to understand what Jesus is saying in a parable, we have to try to enter their world into that first century Jewish world and understand the parable as Jesus told it. So I'm going to try to help us to do exactly that today as we dive into this parable and ask the question, is God fair? Let's read Matthew 20 verse 1. We're going to start there. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner owner, who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, now what Jesus does is he lays out for us two different kinds of people in the first century world, in this first century economy. At the top of the pile, we have the land owner, those who possess the land, um, those who were the wealthy. And they had the opportunity to, to generate more wealth and to sustain their wealth. Now, if we were to break down the first century economy, we could see other classes of people just underneath the landowners. And, and I want to show you kind of just the economy to understand this parable properly. Now, just underneath the landowners would be the people who had a trade. For example, Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. Peter was able to apply his trade, to apply his trade, so to speak. And, and from that, he earned money to live a good life. It's not wrong to think of Peter as a business owner. But only the landowners were wealthy. So the landowners were at the top, then the tradesmen, and then below the tradesmen, there were the household servants. Those who owned land would take into their homes people who would work for them. So, so they lived on their estate and the landowner was responsible for, for giving a place to stay, for giving them food to protect them, and then they would work on the property where they were living. Now below the household servants were the day laborers. So we have the landowners, we have the tradesmen, we have the household servants, and then we have the day laborers. So in this parable, we hear about the landowner and the laborers, the top and the bottom. Here's what you have to know. No one looked out for these people, the lowest of the low. These day laborers lived day by day. If they didn't work today, they wouldn't have bread tomorrow. They, they would gather in the city, hoping for someone, that someone would come by and hire them so they can work for the day, so they can buy food for the next day. They were the poorest of the poor. Now, this landowner in this parable, Jesus tells us, went out early in the morning in verse 1 to hire some day laborers. Now, what you have to know to make sense of this parable is a workday in the first century was a 12-hour workday from 6 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. in the evening. So he goes out into the city and he hires a group of workers at 6 a.m. in the morning to work 12 hours. And he says to them, and they agree that he would pay them a denarius for the day. Now, denarius was the standard wage for a day's labor. 
It was the custom that you would pay a day laborer a denarius for 12 hours of work. Now let's continue on reading in verse 3. At about 9 a.m., so he started first of all at 6 a.m. That's when the day starts, remember? Now at about 9 a.m., he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went and he went out again about at noon. And then about at three o'clock in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. About 5 p.m. in the afternoon, he went out and he found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And they answered, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, if you're listening to the story, to Jesus telling the story, you think to yourself, okay, I understand that a, a landowner would go out and hire workers. We understand that. But why is this landowner going back five times? This doesn't make sense. So if you're listening to what Jesus is saying, this doesn't really line up with how it usually happens. You'll be thinking for yourself, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Why? This is not the usual way of doing things. This is unusual. This is not how it usually happens for day laborers. Usually you would hire someone who can work the whole day, all 12 hours. And I think there's a little bit of an issue here, which we have to pay attention to. If you were going to hire a day laborer, what would you do? Usually we would hire the ones who are the most capable, the strongest, the most skilled, and the youngest ones first. So by the time we get to the 5 p.m. time, Hiring those laborers. Now, people are listening to the story and they know the ones that are still left at 5 p.m., these are the least desirable people, the least desirable workers. Perhaps they were very old. Perhaps they were too young, too weak. Um, perhaps they've been accused of being dishonest, being criminals. Perhaps it was known that they were drunkards. For whatever reason, even at the end of the day, they were still hired. And so this landowner, he goes back again and again and again and again and again. And even the least desirable workers he hires. Until there's no one left to hire. And after the landowner has hired all of these people, even the worst of the worst got an opportunity. Now in verse 8, we continue on. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And you're saying, hmm, that doesn't seem quite right. And it was the same for the people who've been working. They would be thinking, this doesn't make sense. It would make sense if you paid the first workers first and the last workers last. So if you are going to be standing there and you're listening to Jesus' teaching, at this point, you would be a little bit on, on the edge wondering, where is he going? What is he getting at? The landowner has been involved in unexpected behavior with his hiring. And now the compensation, the payment, he's not going to pay the last workers first. What is Jesus getting at? Now in these parables, there are always those moments when Jesus says something or does something or a character would do something that is least expected. And it's in those moments that the point, the point that Jesus wants to drive home is made. So don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. He pays the ones who he hired last, don't miss this, 
a denarius, a full day's wage. He promised that if you work 12 hours, you would receive a denarius. These guys worked one hour and they didn't receive one twelfth of a denarius. They received an entire denarius. This is completely and totally unexpected generosity. It is completely, totally undeserved. It is something that they were not owed at all. Unexpected and undeserved favor from someone who owes them nothing, who is at the top completely disconnected from them at the Bible. The Bible calls that grace. Unexpected and undeserved favor from someone who owes us nothing. That's grace. Let's explain. God's justice, God's mercy, and God's grace. We have to understand these three principles. God's justice. God's justice is getting what we deserve from God. God's mercy is not getting what we deserve because we deserve the punishment of our sins. And God's grace is getting what we do not deserve. Undeserved merit, favor, and blessing. Paul could hardly find language to describe God's grace. In Ephesians 1 verse 6, he writes the following about grace, which has freely been given to us in the one he loves, Jesus Christ. Grace has been freely given to us in the one he loves, who is Jesus Christ. So we receive grace freely, and it's Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that has been lavished upon us. God's grace has been lavished upon us. It's been lavished. His grace has been lavished upon us. It's out of control favor. It's luxurious blessing. It's extravagant grace. It's jaw-dropping, eye-popping, head-shaking, breathtaking, spine-tingling favor that goes from the head of your toes to the tippy of your to uh, tippy of your toes to the head of the top of your head. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. It exceeds anything that we could possibly imagine or expect. It's undeserved. God's grace doesn't make sense by the standards of the world. You cannot reason your way to God's grace. But not everyone responds to God's grace that way. The way Paul responded about it being lavished upon us. And by that I mean not everyone thinks it's fair that others get it or you didn't get enough or more than what they got. Look at the next verse in the parable. It goes on to say, so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Well, of course they expected to receive more. I mean, they could do the math. If a person worked one hour and got a denarius, what's fair is for a person who works 12 hours to receive 12 denarii, right? That seems fair. How many of you have ever had to teach your children to say, that's not fair? Okay, kids, I want all of you to sit down. I'm going to teach you something new today. I want all of you to learn the following phrase. Everybody say, that's not fair. We don't have to teach them that. We all have this sense of injustice in us, especially when we think it's perpetrated towards us. So these guys know. They see that the person who worked for an hour got a whole denarii. 
So they're standing there thinking, I work 12 hours. They thought they were going to get 12 days of wages for one day's work. They expected it. They felt they were owed 12 denarii for the day's work. And when Jesus says in the parable, but each of them also received one denarius, all of you would say, that's not fair. Like them, that's not fair. They didn't think it was fair. Do you think it's fair? By the world standards, it's intensely unfair. But Jesus goes on in the passage and he says, when they received their denarius, they began to grumble against the landover. That might be a mild way of saying it. Those who were hired last worked only one hour. And they said, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. They had borne the bulk of the work and they got the same wage as those who came in at 5 p.m. and only worked for an hour. Is that fair? Some of the late workers might have been drunkards, might have been gamblers, might have been criminals, adulterers, cheaters, rejects, the ones no one wants to hire or to be associated with. But then this landowner shows grace. That's grace. Grace violates our sense of justice. It disturbs our balance. Grace is disruptive. We feel like the rules have been changed when we come face to face with the grace of God, because his grace is not fair. It's too much for too little. Philip Yancey wrote the following, grace has about it the scent of a scandal. I love that phrase. It has about it the scent. It just doesn't, it seems so good to be true. It's like almost like it, it smells like, Something wrong is coming about this, but grace has about it the sense of a scandal. Grace disrupts our sense of justice and fairness. It violates our sense of justice. Many struggle to believe in God that is so gracious. People struggle with that. And this parable goes on and it says the landowner answers one of them. I'm not being unjust to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? What a conundrum we have. We can believe in the grace of God. But then we also have the judgment of God. We have to understand these two things. The question comes up, how can we possibly bring together the justice of God and the grace of God and have it make sense to us? How can I, how can I reconcile a God who is just and a God who is gracious? Let me give you three ideas that we're going to finish with real quickly. Number one, 
First thing which you have to understand, which I have to understand, God's grace only makes sense when we realize the hopelessness and the helplessness of the human condition before God. When we realize we are hopeless and helpless before God, if we don't have that understanding, God's grace won't make sense. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul says it this way, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Each and every one of us, all of us have sinned. Each and every one of us listening to this, merit, to this message has intentionally pursued evil at the cost of other people. And we are dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything about it now, to bring God's favor upon us, to go back and reverse what we've done wrong. We are unable to do that. And we don't deserve God's favor because of all the things that we've done wrong. And that's the first point which we have to get in regards to grace. Grace only makes sense when we realize our hopelessness. We don't deserve it. The second thing which we have to understand, to understand God's grace is, we can make sense of God's grace when we see that Christ's death on the cross satisfies God's justice. To understand that God is just and God's grace, we have to understand that sin had a penalty. A payment had to be made. And it says in the Bible, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For it also says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. You see, God had to judge sin because He's holy, because He's righteous, because He's just. The sins, your sins, my sins, they had to be judged. The penalty for sin was death. And so the sentence of death was executed on our behalf in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. God's justice, His wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that we can be blameless before God. Our sins are forgiven because of what Christ did on our behalf. And we will not pay the ultimate penalty for our sins. Jesus paid it on our behalf, but God wasn't light on sin. God just punished His Son on our behalf. God's justice was met. The third thing that I want you to make or to, to know about God's grace. In order for us to make sense of God's grace, there is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you have done that can cause you to earn it. It is a complete gift that we receive through faith. God's grace is unearned and undeserved. Paul said it this way, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works so that anyone can boast in it. Faith turns what seems like a senseless, an offensive, an unjust act when God pours out His grace upon us into an awareness of just how magnificent God's grace is. Faith turns 
I could never believe in a God that is so loving to that's the God that I believe in. That's the God of grace. So it brings us back again after all of this is said. It brings us back to the question, is God fair? And my answer is no, not at all. His grace that He has available to us and for us that you can receive as a gift is completely unfair. Nothing that we've done validates for God to pour such love, so much goodness, so much blessing into our lives. It is unfair love. It is unconditional, undeserved. Nothing we can do earns us the right to say, I earned God's grace. It's unfair how much God gave. All you have to do and all I have to do is just receive it. Receive it. And know that your God is for you. He's not against you. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your unfair, undeserved grace, love, plans, works, protection, provision, healing, relationship. Everything we have in you, Lord, it's unfair that we get to have it because we don't deserve it. Yet you still gave it. You gave it to us as a gift just to show us how much you love us. And Father, I pray that this message about your love, your undeserved, there's so much in this word, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit will just trigger the moments that you want them to hear, that they can experience your love and know that you love them unconditionally. I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Love you. Hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for joining us on the Life Church audio podcast. If this message spoke to you, go ahead and share it with your friends and family. And let's get the Word of God into the lives of more people out there. For more information about us, go to thisislifechurch.com. And remember that we can make a difference by loving people.